Whitlam Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Yeah, I was just terrified of him. Really, really scared. Um, the statistics are about up to 85% of matters um, have a history of domestic violence. The court deals with issues of child In a recent academic study, one lawyer described the existing federal circuit court that the family court's about to be merged with as a zoo. It is frightening, it is confusing. Children aren't seen or heard. Um, what children say is heavily filtered. There's a culture of distrust. Um, there's a a a perception that children are manipulated by their mothers. What we are talking about is children's safety. Women and children die in this system. This is Camilla Nelson. I'm a research fellow at the Whitlam Institute within Western Sydney University. I'm one of the authors of Broken, a book about what happens to children and their families whose lives are caught up in litigation in the Federal Circuit and Family Courts of Australia. Last year, the Whitlam Institute asked me to find out more about what happens to children in the family law system. So I teamed up with researcher Georgia Coe and journalist Helen Smith to reach out to people whose parents went to court when they were children. We asked them what happened. We met with the court-appointed lawyer and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, "Um, I, I never want to see him ever again. And... I'm scared of him and that he had been drinking a lot when he was with us and made threats to kill. So I actually really almost broke down and I was only about eight in that interview with my sister who was with me and he took that back to the family court and we were still made to spend time with our dad. The voice you're hearing belongs to Donna. I can't tell you Donna's real name because when she was eight, her mother went to the Federal Circuit and Family Courts to try to make safe arrangements for Donna's care. They thought it was safe, uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't safe. I was just terrified of him. Really, really scared. In Australia, it's a criminal offence to identify a party to a family law proceeding. It's also an offence for a person to identify themselves, including people like Donna who just wants to talk about what went wrong. The voice you're about to hear belongs to a man we're calling Nikos. It's not his real name. Nikos's family went to court when he was six. They kept going to court for more than eight years. That's more than half his childhood. Um, The police had actually moved mum and my siblings, me and my siblings, out to a place called three hours away from west of Brisbane in the middle of nowhere. This was due to stalking and harassment that my dad was doing at the time. And after he had tracked us down to I don't know how he did that, but he tracked us down to where we ended up moving back close. Looking back, it's a welter of bad memories. Dad threatening to abducting us. Um, dad threatening to um, make sure mum never sees us again. You know, that kind of stuff is scary for a kid going through that process to to hear, you know, and then... 
hearing hearing your dad as well at that same time through this court process threatening to kill your stepdad is even more horrifying you know like saying I'm gonna and it still sticks to me this day hearing him on the speakerphone <laughs> this stuff stays with you it doesn't just go away at first Nikos saw his dad at a contact center once a week these are places where judges send children when they don't think the children will be safe with their parents on their own the visits were supervised by centre staff, but then Nikos's dad made abuse claims and a judge changed the orders. The court process itself and how it was handled actually allowed my dad to have police come and take us out of school uh, and take us back home um, from the school grounds because of abuse claims. He had claimed that we had been sexually abused and physically abused and... And so that gave that the police extra power in that kind of situation. So, like, you know, that's that's kind of at the time for a kid traumatising to be dragged out of the school by police officers in, in uniform. There's little research about the long-term impact of family court orders on children's mental health. But psychologists agree the impact of childhood trauma is severe, extending well into adult life. I had flashbacks. I started to have flashbacks and that's when I realised I needed to get some help because I couldn't sleep because I just kept having flashbacks of the violence. Um, and even to this day, there's still it still lingers. It could almost, I would almost classify the whole scenario as like a type of PTSD. Looking back now, it's just, it's constant anger, sadness, a lot of frustration, I guess, can be thrown in there. Never offered counselling, no way. Never. But he was offered counselling and programs. My father was offered counselling and programs, but I, I was never offered that as a child. Never. Neither was my mum. Before the 1970s, divorce was a nasty, expensive, shaming affair, a system based on fault. The Whitlam government understood family breakdown as a social problem requiring a social solution. It replaced fault with a less traumatic, socially supportive way of ending a marriage. At least under this legislation, persons will not become financially as well as emotionally bankrupt as a result of divorce proceedings. It also made equal the rights of husbands and wives and there had been differences in the law before that and so on. It was going to be equal. Everything would be based on need and circumstances and the children's interests would be the dominating factor. The Family Law Act passed Parliament in 1975, a revolutionary social reform. It established a separate specialist court with a counselling and welfare service, free legal advice was available for anybody who couldn't afford a lawyer. Children's rights and interests were the heart of the new law. After the Whitlam government was dismissed, the new court, designed to be a helping court, was starved of funds. Mr Whitlam refused to call for a double dissolution. His government should stay in office because of its majority in the lower house. Neither leader would back down. So it must, Sir John Kerr, accept your advice, whatever advice you give. The Governor-General takes the advice from his Prime Minister. Without money, the planned community-based support services couldn't be set up. Before the end of the decade, legal aid funding was restricted and in many cases withdrawn. Once again, divorce became protracted 
and costly. My goodness, like there isn't enough heartache going on in our family court system. If you've got half a conscience over that side, wait till you see what's coming. Because it is a train wreck in action. The families who were able to settle their differences amicably no longer had to go to trial. The families forced to turn to the financially stressed court to make safe arrangements for their children's care were families affected by domestic abuse, often compounded by other risk factors like drug and alcohol addiction. Family violence became the core business of the court. I think I only had one memory where my parents were actually together, and my brother wasn't born, my younger brother, so he was born strangely, like, after they divorced. Um, Family court started while mum was pregnant. That's Anna's voice you're hearing, but it's not her real name, and it's not her real voice. We've used a voice actor to protect Anna's identity. The media scrutinised Anna's case, especially towards the end. By then... Anna had spent most of her life, the whole of her childhood and family court. The whole experience up until I would have been, uh, I think I would have been about 14 when it all ended. I honestly think that even though my dad was extremely violent, family court made it so much worse. I always remember it being there in the background. They always spoke about it. It wasn't something they kept from us. They always asked questions about each other, and they always said they're wasting so much money on lawyers. We lived, uh, I grew up in the Greater West, so so it was a, a big deal to go to Parramatta, and uh, we got dressed up and caught the train, and so I think I remember it because it was such a big day, um, and it was a really strange thing to do. My parents would get really angry. You'd always know, sort of, when court was on, because They'd have different clothes on and you'd be like not going to school in the normal way or um so I do remember being there and just like it was really weird. I remember meeting the ICL in Parramatta and I remember going to Parramatta Court. I remember going to the appeal court in Sydney. Um I remember going later and meeting another ICL and um yeah, we never went into the courtroom. Children in complex family law cases are sometimes assigned an independent children's lawyer, called an ICL for short. They're not appointed in every case. There's a list of recommended situations, complex cases, involving domestic violence or sexual abuse allegations, high levels of conflict. But it's not the ICL's job to be an advocate for the child, just to gather the evidence. I reached out to Lisa Young, Professor of Law at Murdoch University and an expert in children's rights and family law to explain. So the role of an ICL is not as an advocate for the child. They don't work on instructions from the child. They're there to help the court decide what is the best outcome for the child. So they're really an aid to the court. An important function is also hearing from the child. So they do have an, uh, well, I, I won't call it as much as an obligation, but they would normally talk to the child or children involved, but that's not mandated. They don't have to. I don't remember the first ICL because I was a tiny child going to play in a playroom. And then I remember later, I do remember the ICL very well. Um, so she was with Legal Aid and um, she's nice. 
I don't remember speaking to her without my brother. I think she spoke to both of us at the same time. Donna and her sister did get to meet their RCL, but the meeting didn't take place until after the judge handed down their decision, ordering Donna and her sister to spend time with their father, who was violent. Much later, after more litigation, the decision would be reversed. So I felt like that came too late, really, because the damage and the trauma had already been done. Yeah, I, I just think it's not unique. That's the issue that I find with it. It's not a one-off. It's not a mistake. It's not just a something that happened. It's happening still, and it happened to a lot of other kids. I could never understand. He never attended any of the courses and things that the court recommended, yet he was still able to have access to us. Didn't make sense. Anna met both the ICLs who worked on her case, but she says it wasn't an open conversation. Nothing was explained, not even at age 14. I just remember it was really scary being there because um, my dad was terrifying and, like, both parents would get really upset after court dates and um, I just was, like, quite scared of my dad that day. I don't really remember feeling anything except scared of my dad. Judges and lawyers know a lot about the law, but most know very little about family violence and less about the impact of family violence on children. I mean, at the time my parents split, that was not something that was relevant to anything. Yeah, I mean, the only reason we ended up back in court was because my brother got assaulted and hospitalised and he was about 10 or 11. Anna's brother was assaulted by his father, the man the court ordered him to spend time with even though he'd made it very clear that he didn't want to go. And then we went to court and it just introduced mandatory reporting, so they had to report it. Um, and then for some reason this one police officer sort of picked up the report and he came around and he was like, we can't really do anything because it's just a child. Um, but my dad telephoned my mom at the time while the officer was there and because he threatened to kill her on the phone and she was an adult in front of the police officer that they could reopen the family law matter. Anna says the ICL spoke kindly to her, but also told us that the ICL was way out of her depth. I think it, like, she was not incompetent, but she was young and it was, um, you know, she was probably working for legal aid, like, with a heavy caseload, and I reckon even, um, like, 12 months later, if the same ICL had more experience... She was just, yeah, really, really inexperienced. And I don't feel, I actually, one thing, one thing I remember her saying is that um, our file was extraordinarily large. Like she had a paper file and it was massive. And she said, this is one of the biggest files I've ever seen. And um, I do remember her saying that. Violence wasn't discussed. Safety wasn't discussed. The assault on her brother wasn't discussed. Yeah, the attitude was like, yeah, it was just nothing. It was just standard, I think. It was accepted. Like, we weren't asked anything about um, violence or anything like that. She, yeah, she just said, where do you want to live? And that's what I'll ask. And I think she could tell we were scared of both parents, yeah. But they can't. I mean, they can't refer you to child protection. They can only make a submission to the court so she tried to ask where we should go and help us, but that's all she could do. In the family law system, 
violent perpetrators can make use of the court's adversarial processes to intimidate and harass their victims. They can run up legal costs, they can instigate legal actions, sometimes in multiple jurisdictions. Actions that are purely designed to harm or distress the other party, or inflict financial damage by escalating costs. In legal circles, there's a slang term, burning off. Yeah, like he's a... So he was able to understand enough about court to kind of make it go on a bit longer. I think to put my mum under pressure on purpose. Um, I think it affected my parents. Um, I think it was more protracted because my mum did stand up for herself and fight quite hard. But I think because she did try and stand up for herself, that's why it got worse. They both spent a lot of money, so that both put them under pressure and made them angry. Um, It really affected us because everyone was always angry and it just made everyone fight all the time. And it was scary going to my dad's house and my brother would get really traumatized about going and try and hide and it was just traumatic. I think it was the financial pressure they were under and just forcing contact and um, they just like it went on so long. I think it was my mum trying to do the right thing and protect us. Yeah, because mum was very angry and inconsistent with me, but I think she would not have been like that if family court was not happening. If the court had just said in the first place, look, your dad's really dangerous, don't see him, she would have been a lot more settled and not under the same financial pressure. So I think we would have had a much better upbringing. Um, so... Yeah, she just, she knew what was fair and she tried to, you know, protect my brother and kept going to court. So that's really all it was that made it go on that long. Yeah, they weren't really family law issues. Like, it should never have been there. It wasn't like two people caring about their kids and that wanted to look after them. The solicitors um, inflamed it and, um, like, mum did want to protect my brother, I'm sure of that. And there was no way to do it. Like, you couldn't. It wasn't really... You couldn't go to the police if a parent hit their child. It was just something that happened. But to be fair, my dad was terrifying. Even the solicitor was afraid of him. Yeah. I think a lot of cases don't really belong in family court. They should just be in criminal court. And there shouldn't really be a right just to see your children because they're your children. Like, my dad is still my dad, and we're still going to be older and know him. Um, but I didn't have to know him when you're like six and you're looking after a child or trying to hide them so he doesn't hurt them, you know, or listen to while they're getting assaulted. Yeah. Or just being terrified of him fighting and yeah, like you just don't need that. And I think that still happens in family court. As an adult, Anna sees her father once or twice a year, but she doesn't think she should have been forced to see him when she was a child, when the situation was unsafe when her father was clearly unable to care for her or her younger brother. Like, my brother and dad never got along, ever. My dad just hated him since he was born. And um, it wasn't fair that I had to try and protect my brother from my dad. And it wasn't fair that I had to listen to my brother be assaulted. And it wasn't fair, like, that I had to do things for my brother and, and care for him just because my dad couldn't. So, but, like... I loved my dad. Anna was 14 when the final judgment was handed down. She didn't like what the court said, so she ran away. So I don't think anything was ever really resolved by that court in terms of um, access or custody. Everything just dissolved. 
because we got older and we were just going to do what we wanted anyway and they just gave up. This also meant that Anna was forced to leave school. So it did affect me a lot, um, just in like your views and like leaving school early and things like that. But she never looked back. Later, Anna would return to formal education and now works in a specialised professional field. After the interview, we sent Anna a transcript so she could make sure she was comfortable with what she'd said. She sent back an email. I thought afterwards that probably the most unaddressed issue is how badly family court affected the relationship between my mum and I. She wasn't the main perpetrator of family violence, and she did try to protect us from it. But because she couldn't when the court ordered her to send us to Dad's house, it really has caused quite irreparable damage. Thousands of court orders are handed down by the Federal Circuit and Family Courts every year. Only a small number of children will have an ICL appointed to represent them. And even if they do, there's no guarantee the ICL will represent the child's views. But most children will get to meet the family report writer. This is an expert appointed by the court to explain the complexity of the family's situation to the judiciary and legal profession. The family report writer is usually a social worker or a psychologist, in some cases a psychiatrist. Often the report writer is less interested in the child's experience than in the forensic question of whether one or other of the parties is lying. I was always like, oh, you just tell the truth and then that's, and then everything will be okay. And I think it's around, I couldn't understand. Like I I did, I did the thing that they said, I told the truth. I told them what had happened. Why am I still getting hurt? Why Why am I still terrified? And just the idea that, oh, gosh, I knew as a young person, like, if you don't go, your mum will go to jail. Like, it was my job to look after her, so I just had to do everything. That's Jane's voice you're hearing, but it's not her real name. When she was six, Jane tried to tell the family report writer she was being sexually abused by her father but the family report writer didn't believe her. The psychologist said that I'd been coached by my mum because it wasn't possible that a six-year-old could be so articulate in her description of what she was experiencing and it must have come from someone that was an adult. And so that process was particularly horrific because my father was then getting unsupervised access from, from what my mum says to me, there was just a single meeting and I only recall a situation of just being in a most bizarre situation. If you want to make children comfortable, just like a really stark white room with like plush toys or something there. It's like I'm still terrified, like I'm still distrustful. This is just seems so bizarre. And I was very adamant that I was not going to my biological father, especially because I knew what that meant. Um, and my mum, unfortunately, knew what that meant. But my, but the solicitor, my father's solicitor said, if I don't go with my father, then my mum would be put into jail. Sorry, excuse me just a second, sorry. So it was the, like the realisation that, oh, gosh, you tell the truth and you still get hurt and that was a very confronting. But, yeah, it just so happened that um, 
yeah, so anyway, the abuse continued. Claims about the coaching of children by their parents are ubiquitous in family courts. Words like brainwashed are frequently applied to children, even though the idea of brainwashing is not regarded as rigorous or scientific in any other domain of social life. There's a perception that children are manipulated by their mothers. Other words like influenced, aligned, enmeshed and alienated are often used. The notion that women often lie about sexual abuse in family court proceedings simply to win a a case is a myth, but it's a myth that rears its head time and time again. The other myth that children are unreliable witnesses. We've got good data to show that if they're interviewed properly and so on, they're, they're actually very good witnesses. In fact, adults can be really terrible witnesses and can be far more biased. Children can be far more truthful. The perception that if they change their story, that they're lying, that's not so much a myth, I guess, as a misunderstanding of judges or how victims behave. The status quo is that there's a high rate of sexual abuse of children in families by people known to them and mostly men. And that status quo is maintained by diverting our gaze away from the problem, the problem being the sexual abuse of children in families, to the mythical problem, which is false allegations of abuse. And it's that mythical notion of this high rate of false allegations. If we keep looking at that, then we never actually address the real issue, which is the actual abuse at frightening rates of children in their family. And one has to know one has to know that the rates in the family court are not going to be lower than the rates in the general population. If anything, it is likely that the rates are higher because they're the kind of families that might be likely to be in front of the court. In child sexual abuse cases, the law is very good at protecting the rights of the accused, but it's not very good at protecting the rights of victims, including child victims. In the family courts, binding precedents require judges to err on the side of upholding the perpetrator's rights. The risk that the court will find heinous behaviour where none has occurred needs to be borne in mind at all times. There is no presumption or a priori rule that even gross misbehaviour such as child sexual abuse or family violence disqualifies the offending parent or puts up an insurmountable barrier in the way of having contact with a child victim. The search is not for a solution that will eliminate any chance of serious harm. I I had some students who went into court to uh, work with some judges and the judge pulled out a file and gave it to them and said um, it was a case of a sexual abuse allegation that a mother had made in relation to the child and and the, the judge said to the students, oh, have a read of that. Yeah, they all say this sort of stuff just to win the case. That's what what was said to these two students who were horrified. The family courts are built on a powerful discourse in which the cherished idea of children as vulnerable and innocent has quickly given way to a conviction that children are susceptible, malleable, unreliable. Children's own accounts of their experiences are not deemed credible. There's a conviction that children make up stories about sexual abuse for no reason or because children are manipulated by their mothers. My mum is a a very amazing woman, but she was also experiencing the trauma injuries of the domestic violence that she'd sustained for the 10 years prior. And my uh, father was represented by a solicitor in court, um, and it was in that time at family court where the allegations, I want to say, where the abuse was put to the court. 
Um, upon which my father's solicitor uh, denied it and said, no, actually it's um, my mum who's emotional. She's can't, She's an unfit mother. She can't cope. You know, she was jealous and all these different things. The law imposes a silence on children that they can find very hard to break through. Your fate is in the hands of these strangers based on, you know, yeah, it, it was really hard. It was really, really hard. And I actually used to, you know, envision myself as a child just walking in there and screaming at them and telling them the truth, you know, and telling them that he's really dangerous. Um, but, you know, not being heard. So what's the point? What I wanted and what I thought would have been better for me was completely irrelevant to the courts. the most helpful thing throughout all of the court processes was there any anything that helped you um only like the lawyer was great how she really advocated for what I wanted and instead of you know saying oh this is what usually happens in these cases and like you know you're going to have we're going to have to present it to the judge that like I like I know you don't want to see your dad but in most cases you do so we're gonna you know just say this to ensure that the process goes smoothly. That's May's voice you're hearing. May's case was different. The lawyer listened and so did the judge. Um, she was really like, okay, I hear you. I hear that you don't want to go and see your dad, so I'm going to put that before the judge. That was probably the most helpful thing. And, yeah, the the, the judge was really good. And, and like, in the, the um, in the, like, custody order, it said that, I didn't have to see dad at all, but like it was optional if I wanted to see him every second Saturday from like eight till 12, um, which was really great because I think at the time I was really worried that I would be forced to go and see him. Um, I eventually did go to live with dad. That was just a different process that wasn't court related at the time. That was a couple of years after the court process. I think the court and the system underestimates what a child knows at such a young age. I think it's always this view of, oh my God, you know, how would they know at eight years old if they don't want to see their dad? Um, we know. I felt like power was completely taken away from me by the family court. They took all of my power as a child. We like to say in child-related proceedings in family court that it's not really adversarial and we have this less adversarial trial and yet it's deeply adversarial, it lacks empathy. You know, there's no reason you couldn't develop a process that would provide for that kind of more holistic approach to looking at the problems that these families have and allowing them the opportunity to come back, rethinking how they do this for parenting and not treating parenting disputes like any other form of litigation, you know, we move away from this shared parenting emphasis because children, every, every child is unique, every situation is unique, and I think the current model is really a salve to parents and I might even say the father's rights groups rather than to the needs of children. We should really consider when children are old enough to make decisions for themselves, bringing in, them in on the decision-making and then giving them autonomy when they are, in fact, able to assume that autonomy. And the Family Court has a particularly bad record at ignoring the actual 
rights of older children to make decisions about themselves. This podcast is part of a policy project on children's rights and family law supported by the Whitlam Institute. It brings together the facts and evidence, speaks to people with lived experience of family court litigation as children, and puts forward a series of recommendations that are designed to minimise harm to children by bringing the practices of the courts into line with the national principles for child-safe organisations formulated by the Australian Human Rights Commission. The Child Safe Standards are designed to create conditions that reduce harm to children and young people, increase the likelihood of identifying harm, and better respond to children's concerns and disclosures when harm is reported. They're designed to create transparency and accountability. This includes the need to inform children and young people about their rights, the need to adopt measures to support children and young people's participation in decision-making about their rights, and the need to provide a child-safe environment in which it's possible for children and young people to speak freely about their concerns and be taken seriously. I spoke to Megan Mitchell, who wrote the Child Safe Standards, when she was the first National Children's Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission. I think that they have a long way to go before they have, you know, a welcoming, supporting environment for children that understands and realises children's rights in that context. I think it can be done, but you need champions in that court system to make it happen. If you took best interests seriously, you would be considering children's rights to have a voice, have a say in decision-making, to be safe, uh, to have information. These are all the things that children have told me uh, has not been the case for them uh, when they're involved in the family court system. They were told they didn't have any rights in this space. Routinely said or consistently said, you know, I felt I felt dismissed, not seen, not heard, and was given no information and was um, just not somebody seen as central to this decision-making. And so that's very sad for those young people who ended up feeling completely disempowered. If the Federal Circuit and Family Courts were audited for child safety, they'd probably fail the national standard. What's needed is a big ideological shift, a shift that puts children at the centre of decision-making. It's about valuing children and it's about understanding children's rights and it's about changing your systems and your environments so that they're friendly for children, uh, so children can complain, so children can be heard. Everybody was a child once. Everybody talks to children. It's not impossible. It just needs a concerted effort to do so and a commitment in, in your heart and in your actions and in the institutions and the places you work. It just needs a commitment to do that, to review the way you do things now and, and, and ask yourselves, is this child focused? Is this child friendly? Does this embody a child rights approach? And if not, change it. Thanks to our voice actors, Andy Peterson, who voiced Anna, and Johnny Brown, who voiced Lionel Murphy, and the judgments of the Australian courts. Thanks for copyright permissions to Jess Hill, Black Ink Books, Glebe Books, and the ABC. 
Names in this podcast have been changed for legal reasons. Transcripts have been edited and redacted both for clarity and to remove identifying detail as required by law. And if this discussion has raised some issues for you, I'm going to read out three helpline numbers. Kids Helpline, a free confidential telephone and online counselling service specifically for young people aged between 5 and 25. 1800 551 800. That's 1800 551 800. Respect. This is a 24 hour National Sexual Assault and Family Violence Counselling Line. 1800 Respect or 1800 737 732. Men's Line. This supports men and boys who are dealing with family and relationship difficulties. That's 1300 789 978. That's 1300 789 978.